Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. It is a cold, blustery day in February 1949 when a surprisingly short, rather bald man was handed over to several RCMP by a team of FBI agents. They had found this man living in a basement suite in New York City, and this man's name was Sam Carr, and he had been on the run since late 1945. Sam Carr was a spy, but more importantly, he was a spy master. He had collected and organized a fairly extensive network of contacts within various government, military, and scientific circles in order to provide intelligence to the Soviet Union. Was it not for a defection by a low-level cipher clerk Sam Carr may have continued operating well into the Cold War. As it stood, however, his spying days were over on that cold February day. This is Season 8, Episode 10, Our Man in Toronto, Sam Carr and a Soviet Spy Ring in Canada. So today, in a rather unusual break from the standard format, I actually have three book recommendations, which all sort of touch on this time period and this subject matter. The first is by author Amy Knight. It's titled, How the Cold War Began, The Gazenko Affair and the Hunt for Soviet Spies. This came out in 2005 by McClellan and Stewart. The second is by Tyler Wenzel. It's titled, Not for King and Country, Edward Cecil Smith, The Communist Party, and the Spanish Civil War. This was published in 2020 by the University of Toronto Press. And the third is David Levy's Stalin's Man in Canada, Fred Rose, and Soviet Espionage. This was published in 2011 by Enigma Books. Our story begins with a man named Sam Carr. Originally born in Ukraine in July of 1906, his name was Shil Kogan. But as Sam Carr, he immigrated to Canada in 1924. And as a communist, he quickly ingratiated himself within the just recently formed Communist Party of Canada. Now, the Communist Party of Canada was a rather small but clandestine political organization that had first formed back in 1921. 
it in fact received funding from the Soviet Union and was even recognized by the Comintern, that is the international organization devoted to worldwide communism, as its official Canadian chapter. The year that Carr joined the party, it had approximately 4,500 members across the country, though only a small number of those were actually Canadian-born. Most of the membership was actually from Eastern Europe, and they had emigrated to Canada just like Carr. Now, Carr quickly became a rising star within the party, and he was eventually sent to Moscow to train at the International Lenin School. Now, the International Lenin School was founded in 1926, and it handpicked its students to undergo an extensive one-year course in both the intellectual and practical methods needed to spread communism globally. Thus, Carr was, by the time of his admission to the Lenin School, clearly considered an elite member of Canada's small communist community. However, his return to Canada in 1931 resulted in him actually spending two years in prison. You see, in 1930, on the heels of the New York stock market crash of 1929 and the beginning of the Great Depression, R.B. Bennett became prime minister. He was the leader of the Conservative Party. And his administration proceeded to conduct a major crackdown on the labor movement. As part of this, Bennett's government targeted the Communist Party, in particular for its revolutionary rhetoric. And in 1931, under Section 98 of the Canadian Criminal Code, which outlawed advocacy for force or violence for political change, Bennett ordered the arrest of a number of the party's leaders. One of those arrested was Sam Carr, who then spent 28 months in the Kingston Penitentiary. After his release, Carr settled in Toronto, he married, and continued as a leading figure in the Canadian Communist Party. However, when war broke out in 1939, the Communist Party took a public anti-war stance, denouncing Canada's involvement in the conflict. Now, you might be asking yourself, why? One must keep in mind that at this point, the USSR and Nazi Germany had signed a non-aggression pact with one another. In 1940, the CCP, the Canadian Communist Party, was actually declared illegal due to their aggressive anti-war stance. And again, this was before Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, turning the Soviet Union into a Canadian ally in the war. At the time that the Canadian Communist Party was made illegal, Carr was actually living underground, dodging police and government agents while trying to mobilize opposition to Canada's involvement in the war. Now that would all change in the summer of 1941 when Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union with Operation Barbarossa. Eventually, Carr, who was a fugitive on the run, did turn himself in, and he was once again jailed, though this time for only a brief period. Because you see, by this time, it's the autumn of 1942, the Soviet Union was now a fully-fledged ally and deep in the fight against Nazi Germany. In fact, by the time that Carr was released, 
the Battle of Stalingrad was raging. Now, Carr was not released simply because of the new geopolitical reality of a Soviet Union ally to Canada, but he was released upon giving an oath that he would stay out of trouble and do no more work for the Communist Party. In a technical sense, he did stay true to this oath because the Communist Party rebranded itself as the Labour Progressive Party, and he became its national organizer. This meant that he was traveling between major Canadian cities acting on its behalf. However, this was just on the surface. Secretly, Carr used his position as a national organizer as a cover in order to begin building a spy network for the Soviet Union. In fact, within a few weeks of his release, Carr was already securing contacts within Canadian government and military circles, and he would pass on the names of his contacts and even potential contacts to his people at the Soviet embassy in Ottawa, specifically his handler, Sergei Kudryatsev. In their first meeting near the end of 1942, Carr presented Kudryatsev four key contacts, J.S. Benning, an analyst at Allied War Supplies Corporation in Ottawa who could provide intel on Canada's war industries, Eric Adams, an engineer at the Foreign Exchange Control Board in Ottawa, effectively overseeing any money Canada was spending internationally, Fred Poland, an Air Force intelligence officer posted at National Defense Headquarters in Ottawa, and finally, a man known simply as Sorensen, a naval officer able to provide intel on ship design and manufacturing for the Royal Canadian Navy. Now, Carr impressed Kudryatsev and was soon put in charge of what came to be known as the Ottawa-Toronto Group. Now, Carr's contemporary running the Ottawa-Montreal Group was none other than Fred Rose, a Soviet spy who even would go on to become a member of Parliament. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Folks, I know that sometimes advertisements can get in the way of a good story. And here at CCH, we never want a good story's momentum broken up, but we rely on advertisement for the financial support, and it's needed to continue to make this program. That being said, there is a way to access CCH episodes advertisement-free. If you go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search Curious Canadian History, you can access all our episodes ad-free, by just donating $1 or 2 bucks to the podcast. It's basically like 2 bucks a month or 2 bucks an episode. It's easy, safe, and a great way to get this content without the ads. Patreon even has an app, 
So you can simply use the app on your phone like you would be using any of your podcast apps. And then you have every CCH episode right there at your fingertips. Check out patreon.com slash Curious Canadian History today and join the club. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Because Carr was able to travel under the guise of National Party organizer, he was able to meet frequently with both his contacts and Soviet embassy staff, particularly in Toronto, Montreal, and Ottawa. The method by which Carr would meet was via a complicated series of codes that would be passed through his own contacts and back to him. For instance, the Soviet embassy in Toronto would get a message to Eric Adams, who had access to a work telephone and would call his work switchboard, providing a different name, one of his co-workers' names, and then he would get patched through to the offices of a Dr. Henry Harris. Henry Harris was Carr's optometrist and trusted friend. Adams would leave a coded message for Harris, and Harris would then relay the message to Carr. Harris would then relay a coded message back from Carr, identifying where and when to meet. In fact, sometimes if Carr was unable to even make a meeting, Harris would go in his stead. Now, Carr ceaselessly sought to expand his network of contacts. One such later addition was Matthew Nightingale, a communications engineer and officer in the Royal Canadian Air Force. Now, they had met via Nightingale's wife, who attended communist meetings, and Carr reported that Nightingale had passed him details about communication networks in Canada. Another military officer that Carr reported to the Soviet embassy as one of his potential contacts was a man named David Sugar. Sugar was a scientist who worked for a government research agency and then joined the Navy working on submarine detection technology. It's reported that fellow scientists felt Sugar to be overly zealous in his efforts to learn about other research going on in his facility. That being said, there is no evidence to show that Sugar ever gave Carr anything. Now, one might ask, especially in this current climate we live in today, why would anyone want to help the Soviet Union? Most of these recruits were well-educated young intellectuals who had sympathies for the communist agenda. Many had participated in left-leaning organizations such as the League Against Fascism or the Civil Liberties Union, while some were particularly enthralled by the Spanish Civil War of the late 1930s and worked for organizations like the Spanish Relief Committee. You see, the Canadian Communist Party would often hold Marxist study groups, and this kind of became a breeding ground for a number of potential agents. For many of these young people, the spread of fascism abroad, coupled with a serious desire for change within Canada, led them to sympathizing with Marxist ideology and becoming vulnerable to Soviet influence. As one Canadian who spent five years in jail for spying wrote in his memoirs, and I quote, I admired the Soviet Union for what I believed then to be its enlightened view. I wished it well. But like most of my comrades, I suspect, I would not have wanted to live there or make Canada in its likeness. As another Canadian put it, and again I quote, 
In the context of World War II, it was possible for well-meaning, politically naive citizens to pass information to the Soviet Union, Canada's ally in the battle against the Nazis, without considering themselves traitors. Now, besides developing a network of contacts to provide intel to the Soviets, Carr's other job was to help get spies from the Soviet Union into North America. This could include helping them cross the border, providing them with documents, securing housing, and even assisting them in becoming ingratiated into Canadian society. So finding a job or working for volunteer organizations, basically blending in as effectively as possible. One interesting tale of Carr's assistance revolves around a Polish-Canadian couple that arrived in New York in 1938. The husband's name was Ignacy Wichak, and his wife was Bunya. And while they claimed to have been born in Poland but immigrated to Canada, they in fact had never ever been to Canada in their lives. You see, the real Ignacy Wichak was a Canadian volunteer in the Spanish Civil War. His passport had been stolen by the Soviets, and the Soviets assumed that he had been killed and thus gave his identity to their agent to infiltrate into the United States. What's really strange is that while the fake Wichak was completing his PhD at the University of Southern California, the real one was alive and well and working as a farmer in Southern Ontario. When the fake Wichak needed his passport renewed, it was Carr that the Soviets turned to, and it was Carr that provided all the documentation needed to maintain that spy's cover in the United States. By the autumn of 1945 and the end of the war, it seemed like Carr was truly a spy master, with a large network of intelligence gathering operatives feeding information back to him and to the Soviets. Yet, all of this would change with the Guzenko affair. In September 1945, a low-level cipher clerk at the Soviet embassy in Ottawa named Igor Guzenko faced with having to return home to the Soviet Union now that the war was over, defected to Canada. With his defection, he brought with him documents that proved the existence of a massive Soviet spy network in both Canada and the U.S., and at the top of the list was Carr's name. Guzenko, in fact, pinned him and Fred Rose as the masterminds behind most of the spy activity in Canada. Well, not surprisingly, it wasn't long after this defection and this information that heads began to roll. Carr got wind of this defection via his Soviet handlers, and he went into hiding in the U.S., and we'll come back to that in a bit. Harris, his loyal optometrist and friend, hid for a brief time, but eventually turned himself in. The fake witch acts in California evaded the FBI, went underground, and escaped back to the USSR. He never did complete that PhD. Of Carr's contacts, Sugar, Nightingale, Adams, Poland, and Benning were all arrested and eventually brought before a royal commission. The agent known as Sorensen, by the way, was never identified. Now, the commission that they were brought in front of was formerly known as 
the Royal Commission to investigate the facts surrounding the communication by public officials and other persons in positions of trust of secret and confidential information to agents of a foreign power. That is quite a mouthful. Most people today simply call it the Tashiro Commission. It's worth noting that almost everyone arrested as a result of Gazenko's information underwent fairly extreme interrogation. Many were not allowed access to lawyers or even phone calls. They were left in isolation for days, sometimes upwards of two weeks. They were subject to intense repeated questioning, and some of them cracked simply to be able to see their loved ones. Now, despite the fact that some of them, like Sugar, for instance, had actually done nothing, in many ways, all of them were guilty by association, even before any of them stepped foot in front of the commission. It's interesting because after being arrested, Sugar even went on a hunger strike to protest the government's abrogation of his civil rights. The Tashiro Commission was appointed in early February 1946 and was effectively responsible for deciding the guilt of those named in Gazenko's defection documents. Twenty Canadians or persons living in Canada were arrested. One British person named was arrested later on back in Great Britain. Of those 20, 10 were convicted, though the convictions ranged in severity. For instance, Adams and Nightingale were found guilty of contempt of court for refusing to testify against Fred Rose. They received fines of $500 each and three months in prison. Fred Rose was found guilty of conspiring to provide secret information and was sentenced to six years in prison. He was expelled from the House of Commons and his Canadian citizenship was eventually revoked. Sugar, Harris, Poland, and Benning were all acquitted. Sam Carr was the last to stand trial, and that's because in January 1946, he had gone to Cuba to attend a Communist Party conference and was on his way back in February via New York. Now, despite having a train ticket booked from New York to Toronto, he learned that he was a wanted man and thus went underground in New York, where he lived for three years. However, after the RCMP traced some letters to his wife, Julia, he was eventually caught and arrested by the FBI in January of 1949. He was then extradited back to Canada to stand trial, and despite being implicated in almost every aspect of the Soviet espionage network, Carr denied everything. He even denied ever attending the Lenin School. In fact, his defense team argued that Carr was simply a private citizen, and because the Soviet Union was an ally to Canada during the war, he could not possibly have committed treason, as treason was the crime of giving aid to an enemy, not an ally. It's interesting to note that the charge the government levied against Carr was conspiracy to unlawfully procure a passport, which he was found guilty of after a four-day trial and sentenced to six years in prison. When Carr was released after serving his full term, his spying days were done. Obviously, he was now a person who the Soviets could not use, despite him saying openly that he was still a devoted communist. 
He spent the rest of his life writing and advocating for the left-wing United Jewish People's Order under a pseudonym. He was monitored by the RCMP until the day he died in 1989. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends.